The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, as we begin this study this morning, this rich study of Daniel, I'd like you to know that this book, uh, as I said in my prayer, though written in five, somewhere between 535 and 540 BC, is one of the most relevant books for today. Daniel gives the meaning of history and more clearly than any other portion of the Bible, gives us an outline of how to live, how to walk every day in, in, in our lives. And what's more, it tells us how to live in ungodly times. You know, I think every generation has always thought that this was it. Things can't possibly get worse, right? Uh, my parents used to tell me during World War II when Hitler came to power and all the Jews that were exterminating that surely the world couldn't go on. And everybody knew for sure that Christ was coming. Well, here we are 70 years later and we're still dealing with wickedness on the face of the earth. But one of the great blessings that Daniel shows us is that he's in control. He has a purpose for everything that's done. There are parts of the book of Daniel that are puzzling. Certainly, whenever you get into the areas of prophecy, there are things that man can't fully understand, and there are things that maybe we look at from different perspectives and just aren't sure. But rest assured that Daniel lays a foundation and a groundwork that is so clear for us today. One of the great things that I like about Daniel, and probably the thing that drew me to it more than anything else, certainly prophecy is relevant. But the reality that Daniel gives us a clear map of how to live in the times we're living. As we look in the news and we see everything going on around us, we know that there are places in the world where Christians are just a a word away from death. We know in this country that we don't experience it to that extent, but it's clearly a movement going on in our country today that is seeking to move the Christ of the Bible, to the back. And Christians need to stand strong in our faith. Now, there are several key things that the book of Daniel makes clear, and I want you to consider these facts as we begin. Number one, Daniel was a godly man who was taken from his homeland and forced to live in a heathen society. Think about that. A godly man a man who lived for his God and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these people who were dedicated to God, who gave their lives to him, and it's them that are yanked out and put into a place to have to serve this pagan king. Secondly, the Babylon of Daniel's day was a type of all kingdoms that do not acknowledge God or think they can dispense with him. And this is a great description of most of the world's societies today, and quite frankly, even in so-called Christian America. Number three, Daniel and his three, three friends were under tremendous pressure to conform. His, his religion was tolerated as long as he did not allow it to inter, intrude into the public place or to rock the ship of state. And that's our situation today, isn't it? We can practice our religion so long as it's not in the schools, 
in the workplace or in the marketplace. And as you watched over years to over the last 10, 20, 30 years, that slow but subtle push of taking prayer out of the schools, of taking 10 commandments away from the public eye, there's that constant push just as it was in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Number 4, the world seemed to be winning. Nebuchadnezzar was reigning. Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be superior to the Jewish God, mainly because he conquered them. He took their king, but more importantly, he took the gold and the silver that had been dedicated to the worship of Jehovah, and he took it to Babylon and put it in his treasury to his gods. Everything looked like the secular humanistic philosophy was winning. But number five, in spite of these things, God told Daniel that it is he, God, and he alone who is in control. Even in the overthrow and captivity of his people. In the end, God will establish a kingdom that will endure forever. The destiny of the people of God is wrapped up in that kingdom, and one day it is coming. And one day, God's people will triumph with their Savior. I don't know of any message more timely or valuable to Christian living in our own secular and materialistic times as this message from Daniel. In Daniel, we have a stirring and helpful example of one who not only lived through times and survived them, but who actually triumphed in them and excelled in public life to the glory of God. And one of the great keys about Daniel was that he never compromised. He never compromised his God. He did not bow to the world's idols. He was hated. He was even plotted against. But he triumphed because he knew God and trusted him to do with his life whatever he pleased. One of the great quotes in the Bible, comes from the book of Daniel. It's a very moving and stirring uh, quote from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were facing the fiery furnace. And think about them standing ready to be cast into this furnace. And in Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, he be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Boy, do we need people like that today. Do we need churches like that today? People who are aware of the dangers of trying to serve God, but will stand committed to him and will not compromise their faith in Christ. They are the only ones who really triumph. And in the last analysis, they are the only ones who make a difference. Jesus called Daniel a prophet, thus validating both the man and his function. Jesus said of him in Matthew 24, 15, 
So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Jesus called Daniel a prophet. Yet the book of Daniel is constantly under attack. And why wouldn't it be? A book that tells God's people how to live? A book that tells God's people that they have already triumphed? A book that lays down prophecy of what's to come? It will constantly be under attack by the evil ones. The 19th century scholar and churchman E.B. Posey had, had it right when he said, quote, The book of Daniel is especially fitted to be a battleground between faith and unbelief. It admits of no halfway measures. It is either divine or an imposter, end of quote. And that's the book we're embarking on this morning. So what of the importance of Daniel? What is the value of Daniel apart from its becoming a battleground between faith and unbelief? The large portion of the book given to prophecy is, is one measure of its value, as well as the main reason that it's constantly under attack. But it is not the whole basis for the book's place in the canon. True, there is a great deal of prophecy. Daniel predicts precisely the year of Jesus' coming in Daniel 9. He foretells the history of his portion of the world from the time of Nebuchadnezzar up to the beginning of the Christian era, accurately forecasting the rise and the fall of the Medes and the Persians, the Greek kingdom, Alexander the Great and his successors, and even Rome. He speaks of some things yet to come. And although these predictions are important, they are not necessarily the most important themes in Daniel. So what is the chief and most important theme of this book? Well, we don't have to go far to begin to get a taste of what it is. Right in Daniel 1, the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of gold. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the book begins by saying that the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity of its people, and Daniel was at the hand of God. Now that doesn't always sit well with modern day Christians. Because what we're looking for is a God who gives us what we want, aren't we? We're looking for a God that when I have a need and pray, he's going to supply that need. What a special Christianity. <laughs> but when you go through the Bible, you find that the reality is that God works in good times and bad. And that all things are under his hand. And what we should be seeing out of the book of Daniel is a reality that no matter where we are, what we go through as an individual, as a church, as a nation, God is in control. He is sovereign. And of course, this comes right at the heels of three invasions of the southern kingdom of Judah. The third invasion is the one we remember most. It took place in 586 BC when Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the people of the land were deported to Babylon. 
Since Daniel begins by relating the events of the book of the deliverance of the king of Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, it must have been in these earlier um, battles that both Daniel and Hananiah, renamed Shadrach, Mishael, renamed Meshach, and Azariah, named Abednego, were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon to be trained for Nebuchadnezzar's service. So here's the way the, the book opens up. Godly men snatched out of their home and set to be serving the most heathen king on the face of the earth. That causes you to back up and look and to really ponder how God is so in control of the details of our life. The interesting thing about this beginning of the book is that it's not the four men whose stories will be told in subsequent chapters, but rather the articles from the temple of God that Nebuchadnezzar put in the treasure house of his God. And that is no incidental or irrelevant beginning. On the contrary, it is the theme of the book and the key to everything that follows. As the story will show, Nebuchadnezzar was an exceedingly arrogant man. And the conquests he made were understood by him to be proof of his superiority. His ranking over the God and the people of Israel. The Jews boasted that their God Jehovah was all-powerful. But yet here, Nebuchadnezzar had triumphed. And this is why he brought the gold and the silver articles that had been dedicated to the service of Jehovah in Jerusalem to Babylon and placed them into the treasure of his gods. The heathen gods had seemed to triumph, and Nebuchadnezzar was sovereign. Now, if you were alive in that time and this took place, how would you be feeling right now? As you looked at your country being conquered and you were shipped over to this enemy's power, what would you be feeling right now about God? What would you be feeling right now about your prayers? Would you have the fortitude to know that God is in control like Daniel and his three friends? Very interesting how this book plays out in the hearts of all these people. So this is why he brought them there. And in the case, as in so many other historical cases, however, appearances are deceiving. Actually, Jehovah was a, as much in charge of the overthrow of Jerusalem as he was in their earlier defenses. In fact, it was Jehovah who had brought the destruction, sending it as a punishment for the people's sins. But now, in spite of the fact that he had je delivered Jehoiakim, king of the Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, God was going to show that he was sovereign. And here's the key to the book. So we must understand that the principal theological theme and emphasis of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh, the God of Israel. At a time when it seemed that all the world was lost, God is going to triumph. The Lord is ready to display his omnipotence. 
So the theme running through the whole book is that the, the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees. And that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. And it's just as true today. And folks, this is why I say so often to us, don't get caught up in the language. Don't get caught up in the battles. The greatest thing you and I can do is rest in peace and confidence that God is in control and witness that to the world. The greatest thing you and I can do is share with these people the absolute love of Christ. As I've said so many times before, the world, those outside of Christ, they don't know any better. As 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man, the unsaved man, he doesn't understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. What we do is, is emulate what Christ did on earth. Love them. Show mercy and grace. That's the only thing that sets us apart from the world. That's the only thing that gives us credibility to a world that's lashing out. When someone hates you because of your stand, what are they going to do when you offer them a hug and share the love of Christ? That's what's important. The miracles recorded in chapters 1 through 6 demonstrate God's sovereignty on behalf of his saints. The great and most important theme in Daniel is that there is but one God who is Jehovah, and that he is sovereign over the events of history. What a powerful way to start our study. To know right at the outset that God is orchestrating everything. But what about these struggles, the struggles between two forces? One of the most influential books on theology I think ever written is called The City of God by St. Augustine. Its theme concerns the existence of two societies, which Augustine calls cities. One is a godly society. The other society is the world. Augustine described them by saying, quote, Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The reason I mention Augustine's theology of history is that he points to a very clear difference between the world and God's people. He calls them cities and he details them as two cities that fight continually and are trusting to live for God. And as we see this in generation after generation after generation after generation, it is this that makes Daniel a contemporary book. So here's what I want us to understand as we go through these weeks to come. We study the book because we must learn the proper way to live. The proper way to surrender to God. The proper way to put God above everything in your life. You know, in our society today, it's so easy to get swept up in the world's pleasures. There are many things in this world that we enjoy that are perfectly fine. We're not legalists here. We don't set boundaries like that. But wouldn't it be wonderful 
if all of us set our lives to hinge on the will of God every day. That our sole purpose is to let Christ have all of us. That we might worship him and know him in the power of his love. The chief characteristic of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's time is that what we would call radical secular humanism. And we have a great example of this by Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says in Daniel 4 verse 30, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? There's no arrogance there. I mean, this guy was full of himself. The fact is, it's true. It's a true statement because he had built Babylon and he had undoubtedly done it for his own glory. But in forgetting God, who had given him the opportunity to create such magnificence, Nebuchadnezzar was actually taking God's glory for himself. And like all secular humanists, he was saying that all that exists is of man, by man, and for man's glory. And this is what we battle today. In 2017 America, secular humanism is noticeable in many ways. As people increasingly view the reality as emerging from man and as existing for man and man's glory. We have many, many, many um, examples that we could talk about. But let me just give you two examples that you're very, very very, very familiar with, and you understand very clearly. The first is the philosophy of evolution, which is the dominant reference for most persons thinking and which extends to almost everything they're involved in. Why is evolution so popular, and why are educators insistent that it and it alone should be taught in schools? Well, we don't have time to address everything in an introduction, but the one key fact and the one key reason is that it eliminates God. Precisely what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do in his own way. If all things can be explained as the natural outworking of development of, of previous causes, then God may safely be banished and eliminated altogether, as many even so-called theologians have done. Evolution allows man to be at the center of his universe. And it removes all the guilt that would naturally come from God. <clears throat> so the more they remove it, the more they take it out of their sights, the less convicted they are. The second example of today's secular humanism is our current doctrine of the separation of church and state which comes into a study of Daniel very clearly. Nebuchadnezzar, who represents the state, was against God, and he sought to remove the God, the Jehovah of the Jews, out of everything. It was always understood that both church and state were responsible to God, in whose wisdom each had been established. They were two independent servants of the same master. But today, however, the doctrine of the separation of church and state is taken often by many church people to mean that the church is irrelevant to the state. 
And though the state increasingly brings its secular philosophy to bear on the church, the confusion it causes runs rampant. As the state gains power, the church withdraws, pulling back, thinking it's irrelevant, and losing its focus as, as to how it's supposed to live and affect the state. The state becomes its own god, with its chief operating principle being paganism. It then seeks to keep religious values out of politics, promising to keep us safe to worship as we choose, so long as we do it on the reservation, if I could say it that way. Nebuchadnezzar considered himself master because he was able to take gold and silver out of Jerusalem treasury and carry them to Babylon. But the world is not master. God is master. God is sovereign, and he is able to bring the secular city down. He did it in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'll give you a little insight ahead. Uh, We'll get there probably in a few weeks. But Daniel chapter 4, while he's boasting of himself, Daniel chapter 4, verse 31 through 32, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar became insane. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Oh, he got his. You see, folks, God's in control. And even when they saw their nation destroyed, their temples burned to the ground, their gold and silver that had been dedicated to Jehovah taken away and given to their gods, God was still in control. And in the right time, God intervened. And you and I need to know today that in the right time, God will intervene. The things that are happening today are by his permissive will. There is nothing that he isn't in control of. There is nothing that takes him by surprise. So when you get up in the morning and you you check your device and you you look at the news and, and you see the riots and you see the anger and you see all the things going on, rest assured, God is in control. And God is bringing all things into his purpose. So the perfect reaction for you and I when we read these things is to get on our knees Praise God and ask him, how can I be used to be a testimony for you in this world? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put to the test. Like none of us would ever want to be put to the test. And they stood strong. They stood fast in the face of death. And they stood for their God. I wonder if we were suddenly put to in a place where we would have to compromise or stand for God, what would we do? I pray that the study of this book will encourage us 
to take strength in the examples God has given us. God recorded the book of Daniel for us today. All scripture is given by inspiration, right? It's profitable. It teaches us how to live. And this book written back in 535 to 540 BC is a book that will tell us how to stand for Christ and how to live for him. And that's why it's so relevant today and so important that you and I clearly understand it. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar is what happens to people when they take God's glory for themselves. We may wonder what God is doing, but rest assured, he's in control. What about the people of God? You know, at the same time, while the world is living by its own standards and for its own glory in opposition to God, there is another people who know God and honestly live for him. In this story, they are Daniel and his friends. They are not the most visible people, just as the city they represent is not the most visible when you compare it to the secular cities, but they are substantial people and they have a ministry that conquers all. And in the final analysis, they are the only ones who make any real difference for good. No one is by nature in the company of these servants of the true God. All are born into the secular city. But the city of God can be entered by new birth through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. John 3.3 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The doors to the city stand wide open for anyone who would enter in. God has made available his city. And his call goes out to the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Daniel and his three friends took that promise. Daniel and his three friends believed God and gave their lives to God and made a huge impact. In Hebrews 11 Verses 9 through 10, we read, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I pray this morning that you are part of that city. I pray that your residence is in that city because you have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, that you believe that he died for your sins, that you believe that when he left heaven and came, he loved you with an everlasting love. I never cease to marvel about a God who created me, and yet when I turned my back and sinned, he loved me enough to give his life for me. He gave his life, the creator, for the created. What a way to glorify him. And I pray this morning as we get into this study and begin to press into the details of Daniel, that your life would become increasingly driven by the Spirit of God to walk in his grace and mercy. And know 
the love that passes all understanding and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we begin this book for your great mercy and grace. Lord, none of us is worthy of your love. Yet before the foundation of the world, you chose to love us with that everlasting love. And we'll never fully understand it this side of glory. But oh, Father, give us a passion. Give us a heart. Give us a drive in our spirit to walk with you, to surrender to you, and to allow you to live through us every step of the way. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do through the study of your prophet Daniel. And I pray that we will all commit to be faithful, to be here, to hear your words, and to gain the understanding that we need to live in a very hostile society. You must increase, and we must decrease. But to the glory of God, may it be said of all of us, in Christ's precious name, amen. God bless.